Scripture reading this morning is Psalm 68. Psalm 68. A lengthy psalm, but a psalm in connection with the ascension of Christ and the seating of Christ at God's right hand. So listen for those ideas. Understand the background of Psalm 68. God had just given the Israelites a great victory, and now the Israelites are commemorating that victory and giving praise to God. Think of what you ought to praise God for in this psalm and listen for what is quoted in the New Testament. Let's read all of Psalm 68. This is God's Word. Let God arise, let his enemies be scattered. Let them also that hate him flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melteth before the fire, so let the wicked perish at the presence of God. But let the righteous be glad, let them rejoice before God, yea, let them exceedingly rejoice. Sing unto God, sing praises to his name. Extol him that rideth upon the heavens by his name Yah, or Jehovah, and rejoice before him. A father of the fatherless and a judge of the widows is God in his holy habitation. God setteth the solitary in families. He bringeth out those which are bound with chains, but the rebellious dwell in a dry land. O God, when thou wentest forth before thy people, when thou didst march through the wilderness, the earth shook, the heavens also dropped at the presence of God. Even Sinai itself was moved at the presence of God, the God of Israel. Thou, O God, didst send a plentiful rain, whereby thou didst confirm thine inheritance when it was weary. Thy congregation hath dwelt therein. Thou, O God, hast prepared of thy goodness for the poor. The Lord gave the word. Great was the company of those that published it. Kings of armies did flee apace, and she that tarried at, the ho at home divided the spoil. Though ye have lying among the pots, yet shall ye be as the wings of a dove covered with silver, and her feathers with yellow gold. When the Almighty scattered kings in it, it was white as snow in Salmon. The hill of God is as the hill of Bashan, and high hill as the hill of Bashan. Why leap ye, ye high hills? This is the hill which God desireth to dwell in. Yea, the Lord will dwell in it forever. The chariots of God are twenty thousand, even thousands of thousands, thousands of angels. The Lord is among them, as in Sinai, in the holy place. Thou hast ascended on high. Thou hast led captivity captive. Thou hast received gifts for men, yea, for the rebellious also, that the Lord God might dwell among them. Blessed be the Lord, who daily loadeth us with benefits, even the God of our salvation. He that is our God is the God of salvation, and unto the Lord God, unto God the Lord belong the issues from death. But God shall wound the head of his enemies, and the hairy scalp of such an one as goeth on still in his trespasses. The Lord said, 
I will bring again from Bashan. I will bring my people again from the depths of the sea, that thy foot may be dipped in the blood of thine enemies and the tongue of thy dogs in the same. They have seen thy goings, O God, even the goings of my God, my King, in the sanctuary. The singers went before, the players on instruments followed after, among them were the damsels playing with timbrels. Bless ye God in the congregations, even the Lord from the fountain of Israel. There is little Benjamin with their ruler, the princes of Judah and their council, the princes of Zebulun and the princes of Naphtali. Thy God hath commanded thy strength. Strengthen, O God, that which thou hast wrought for us. Because of thy temple at Jerusalem shall kings bring presents unto thee. Rebuke the company of spearmen, the multitude of the bulls with the calves of the people, till everyone submit himself with people pieces of silver. Scatter thou the people that delight in war. Princes shall come out of Egypt. Ethiopia shall soon stretch out her hands unto God. Sing unto God, ye kingdoms of the earth. O sing praises unto the Lord. To him that rideth upon the heavens of heavens, which were of old, lo, he doth send out his voice, and that a mighty voice. Ascribe ye strength unto God. His excellency is over Israel, and his strength is in the clouds. O God, thou art terrible out of thy holy places. The God of Israel is he that giveth strength and power unto his people. Blessed be God. Now turn with me briefly in the scripture to Ephesians to see where this psalm is quoted, at least one of the places, in Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 7, we'll read a few verses here. Verse 7, but unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Now there is the subject of gifts. And verse 8, wherefore he saith, and here is Psalm 68, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, What is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave, and here are the gifts, some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers and so forth. It's on the basis of that Word of God, especially in Psalm 68, that we have the teaching of the Catechism in Lord's Day 19. The first two questions and answers of Lord's Day 19 this morning we treat and then save question 52 to next time, which will be, God willing, in about three weeks because next Sunday is Easter and the following Sunday a baptism. The Lord's Day 19, questions 50 and 51. Why is it added, and sitteth at the right hand of God? Because Christ is ascended into heaven for this end, 
that he might appear as head of his church by whom the Father governs all things. What profit is this glory of Christ our head unto us? First, that by his Holy Spirit he pours out heavenly graces upon us, his members, and then that by his power he defends and preserves us against all enemies. Who it is that sits on the throne of power makes all the difference in how I feel. That's true even in an earthly sense. That is, who's in control in an earthly kingdom makes all the difference in the hearts of the people. In the United States of America, for example, you feel better if there is a ruler of a certain party, perhaps, rather than the ruler of another party. It makes a difference how you feel when, whether it's one party or another, whether it's a strong man or what you would consider to be a weak man, a wise man, over against what you would consider to be a foolish man, an honest man over against what you know to be a dishonest man. It makes a difference in how you feel and how secure or comfortable you are as to who it is that's in power. And if that's true in an earthly sense, how much more so is that not true with regard to the throne where one rules over all things? Now look up. And with your eyes of faith, Again, look up where Christ ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God there to rule as head over everything. Look up and see Jesus appareled in omnipotence and girded round with might. See Jesus in all His glory, majesty, wisdom, Righteousness, honesty, truth, integrity, and love. See Jesus there, who from all eternity had your name written upon his own heart. See Jesus, who in his perfect wisdom and power is able to see you and know you and govern all things for your well-being. Look up, people of God, and see Jesus. It makes all the difference in the world. The condition of your heart as to who is on the throne. And today, the truth of the Word of God that comes to us is we see Jesus seated at the right hand of God throbbing with power and might and wisdom and honor and riches and glory and blessing and love. We see Jesus. Can you imagine, if you are not a believer, the condition of your heart seeing Him on the throne? You'd want anyone on the throne but Him. 
Can you imagine? They have nothing. All of their gifts are taken away from them. They're spoiled. Their hairy scalp is wounded. Dogs are going to lick their blood. That's Psalm 68. All of that to impress upon us the reality that if you are not a believer and you see Jesus because they do on His throne, the condition of your heart must be fearful. But now, yours, yours. You have a life, don't you, individually. When you have your own devotions, when you pray before you go to bed, when you pray when you wake up in the morning, lift up your eyes and see Jesus and ask yourself what a difference that's going to make to you in the condition of your heart. He's ruling. When you sit down together as a family, if you're in an earthly family and you have your family worship, it's going to make a difference, isn't it? That you see Jesus on the throne and you know He's in control. And that's going to make you as a family, as well as you as individuals, submit to Him, obey Him, honor Him, do everything that He calls you to do. But now we are not sitting as individuals or as earthly families. We are sitting together as the family of faith. And as the family of faith, we are going to lift up our eyes of faith this morning and see Jesus crowned with honor and majesty, filled with power and love for us. And it will make a difference as to how we feel in our hearts and how we live our lives. We're not afraid, and we want to obey Him, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look at this word this morning under the theme, our ascended head at God's right hand. And then just two points. The first one is going to be the major point, the rich meaning. And then the second point, way at the end, the great prophet. Not that we will minimize the importance of the prophet, but that there are five major things that need to be said about the rich meaning that our ascended head is at God's right hand. The rich meaning and the great prophet. Why is it added, the catechism asks, and sitteth at the right hand of God? I remind you the answer that we make in our confession. This is what we confess. Christ is ascended to heaven for this end, that he might appear as head of his church, by whom the Father governs all things. And then the next question, is there any profit in that? Yes. And that will be then the second point, by His Spirit, He pours out heavenly graces upon us, His members. And then, that by His power, He defends and preserves us against all enemies. First, the rich meaning is that Christ is our head at God's right hand. Number one, it is the man, Jesus, that ascended into heaven, is seated at God's right hand, and made the head of the church, filled with power and glory and majesty. It is the man, Jesus, that's seated at God's right hand. 
You remember your theology from catechism? You've learned this doctrine before. There's a distinction between Jesus as a man and Jesus as God. And that's the distinction we're making to begin this morning. We are looking at Jesus as a man who is ascended and seated at God's right hand. Not that there's a difference. That is, that there are two, a man and a God. There's one, the God-man But we are saying this morning that the Scripture teaches that it was Jesus as a man that was born, suffered, died, descended into hell, and it is Jesus as a man that rose again from the dead, ascended into heaven, sits at God's right hand, and is going to come again to judge the living and the dead. Jesus, as a man, did that. It was a man that was born of the Virgin Mary. A man that suffered under Pontius Pilate for 33 and a half years. The man named Jesus was tried in a miserably wicked trial. Condemned to death. Pierced his hands and his feet. Hanged on the cross and died. That man did. And then went to the grave. A man did. And then rose from the dead. The man did. The descent all the way into hell. And now the ascent all the way up to God's right hand is the ascent of a man. You see, you need to say that because God doesn't sit at God's right hand. God is God. God isn't given headship, but the man Jesus sits at God's right hand, and the man Jesus is given headship. That's the first point that we need to explain and apply very briefly. Now that man, the Word of God tells us in twin epistles in the New Testament, was appointed to be there from all eternity. Let's make that point briefly to this morning. The 20 epistles are Ephesians and Colossians. And when you get home today, perhaps your family worship can study Ephesians 1 or Colossians 1 because both of them say that this was not a random choice of a man, but the choice of a man that God from the very beginning determined to have there at his right hand. In Ephesians 1 verse 19, You read that in the dispensation of the fullness of time, God might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are in earth, even in Him. And then the verses prior to that, God has made known to His people the mystery of His will. He opened up what He had planned from all eternity You want to see it? It's this. His own Son who would become a man in the fullness of time would suffer and die as a man, be buried as a man, and then resurrected as a man all so that He could be ascended up into heaven and seated at God's right hand full of power and honor. The very same thing Paul says in Colossians chapter 1. Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by Him were all things created that are in heaven 
and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things are created by Him and for Him. I've quoted that passage before because of its central importance in all of the Scripture. All things were made by Christ and all things were made for Christ. And now we are reaching the culmination of for Christ. Christ came and descended. Now Christ came and ascended. And now Christ is given this great position of power and glory to rule all of the worlds for the sake of the church. And He's soon to come to judge the living and the dead. And that will open us up into eternity. We're not there yet. We are seeing Christ seated at God's right hand. Christ, here's the point, is before everything. Now if that puzzles you, that you hear in the Word of God that Christ is before everything, it is sensible that it puzzles you because historically that's not true. Historically, Christ comes after 4,000 years of human history. How can it be then that Christ is before all things, and yet in a very real sense He is, and that is because He is so in the counsel of God. Before everything in the counsel of God is the Lord Jesus Christ. Before the creation of the world is Christ Before the fall of mankind into sin is Christ. He's before all things, and by Him all things consist, and from Him all things come. That's the teaching of Colossians 1. You see, you mustn't imagine that God determined to create the world first, and then only after He saw that the world would fall, He decided that He would ordain Christ, It's not even true that God chose the church first and then chose Jesus as the head of the church. But here's the teaching of Colossians. He is before all things. That position of power where Christ is seated now was a position that was assigned to Him before everything else. First, God created under Adam for the sake of Christ. God chose a church out of the nations to be the body of that Christ. So the creation, then the fall of the creation, then the redemption of the church out of that fallen creation all serve the glory of Christ. Christ, seated at God's right hand. Now reflect on that for a moment and apply that briefly. If you ever have opportunity to write a history book, and maybe some of you who are teachers might, or, which is more likely, any of you read a history book that analyzes the history of all of the world, then understand that history book means nothing unless it sees Christ at the center of all history. And which is more likely yet that you learn history in school as young people, understand the reason that your Christian school history teacher teaches what he or she does is this. Christ is at the center. Nothing means anything apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. 
the great issue of all history is who's going to be on the throne? Who's going to govern the worlds? Who's going to control the universe? Who? And if you go back to the very beginning of human history, you understand that there's a controversy there. There was one who wanted to be seated at the right hand of God and control all things. His name is Lucifer. He's the one who came down in the form of a serpent and tempted Adam and Eve to listen to him so that they would be as God and rule the worlds. Man instead of God. Man's choice instead of God's choice. And then when God said, I'm going to put enmity between your two seeds, and the seed of one will bruise the head of the other, and the seed of the other will bruise the heel of the one, he was explaining what is the issue in all of human history. There's a controversy between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. The seed of the woman will reign. The seed of the serpent wants to reign. And everything in history is explained by that. It's not communism against capitalism. It's not Russia against the United States. It's not blacks against whites. It's not feminism against men. It's this issue. Who governs the worlds? Who? And I say again, man apart from God wants that position. The devil wants that position. When Antichrist comes to reign, that's what he is going to attempt to do. Rule the world instead of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the temptation that Jesus faced, isn't it? The third temptation was what? Bow down to me, said the devil to Jesus. I'll give you all of the kingdoms of the world and their glory if only you become second to me. And when the Bible comes to its conclusion in the book of Revelation, that's the issue. Who will be king? And praise God, the issue has been settled. The Lord Jesus is king. He's already seated there. He is now He's gained the victory. He's destroyed principally all his enemies. And all it takes is that we look up into heaven and see Jesus Christ there. And acknowledge his kingship. Submit to it. And let your hearts be at peace because he reigns. That's the point of the word of God to us this morning. The man Jesus is exalted in that position. The second main point that needs to be made in the first point of the sermon is that that man that God honored so was also God. In order to bear the weight of responsibility and carry out the duties at God's right hand, he had to be more than a man. And so we're not contradicting what we said at the very beginning of this point. We're simply clarifying an equally important fact that man, as to his person, is God. If you, for example, would like to reign in a position that's very, very important, let's just imagine the presidency of the United States of America. You might be able to be elected to that position, but you very likely do not have the capacity to serve in that position. So also to be in the position that God has 
someone serve at his right hand, you need to have the capacity, the wisdom, the might, the power. And that's God himself in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we read in Psalm 68. And now we'll connect Psalm 68 with Ephesians 4 for a moment. Psalm 68 says, Thou hast descended on high, thou hast led captivity captive, thou hast received gifts for men, yea, for the rebellious also, that the Lord God might dwell among them. Thou, who is the psalmist talking about? The psalmist is talking about God. And that prophecy was fulfilled in the ascension of Jesus into heaven. And we know that because in Ephesians 4, 8, the apostle quotes Psalm 68 and applies it to Jesus. Thou hast ascended on high. Jesus the man is also Jesus the God. Who is it that ascended on high? It is the man, Jesus. Who is it that ascended on high? It is the God, the Son of God, in that man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, third, this morning, the rich truth is that that Jesus, who's both man and God, is exalted to be the head. Head. Now, we put it in the Apostles' Creed in this way. He's seated at God's right hand. We say that every Sunday evening, He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God. That's an old figure of speech where a king desired a man of his good pleasure who is able to be his, what we would say, right-hand man to bestow honor upon him and allow him actually to govern all things. He's the chief operating, not executive, but operating officer. He's the one who does what the executive commissions him to do. And what that actually consists of is that Jesus is made the head. Now, I call your attention again to the catechism. He might appear as head of the church by whom the Father governs all things. And then in 51, what profit is this glory of Christ, our head unto us? And that's what Ephesians 1, says, to be head over all. Now we need to understand headship. What is headship? That's being debated today. The headship of Christ, the headship of man in marriage. What is headship? And it's being debated today because the liberal churches who are ignoring Scripture want to put women in a position of rule in the congregation as elders or as ministers. And therefore they're debating what it means to be head. And that goes back to what it means that a man is the head of his wife And it goes all the way back to what it means that Christ is the head of his church. And if you can take out authority and rule from headship, well, you understand what that will do to Christ's relationship to us and a man's relationship to his wife. But if you want to take away authority from headship, 
the concept of headship, then you're probably able to put a woman into office and rule in the congregation. You understand that that's what's going on in the churches. That's the evil that's taking place in the churches. But you understand that you touch the one, the headship of a man over his wife or the headship of an elder over the congregation, you are also going to touch the other, the headship of Christ over the church because Ephesians chapter 5 connects the two. And so plainly, no one can deny that. As Christ is the head of the church, so man is the head of his wife. And the women must submit to their husbands because the church submits to Christ. In order to put a woman in that position as elder, you need to explain away the plain teaching that even the children can understand from Ephesians 5, that there is in headship authority and rule. We'll look at headship for a moment. Headship, in the first place, means that the head is primary. That is, the head is first, and that's true we saw with regard to Christ. Not only true with regard to importance, but true with regard to time. Time. From whom, Ephesians 4.16 says, comes the body. Remember when I said Christ is first in the council of God and the church is chosen to be the body of Christ and flows out of the Christ? The body depends on the head. Now you have a reflection of that in marriage too. Paul calls attention to that. The woman wasn't first. The man was first and then the woman out of the man. That's how God created Adam and then how God created Eve from Adam. So you have primacy. In the second place, headship refers to an organic relationship between head and body. We understand that too. That's the way it ought to be in marriage, but that's the way it is in God's reality of a head and a body. The way it ought to be in marriage is that there's a living relationship between the man and the woman, not a mechanical relationship, not a relationship in which two are stuck together, but a way, a relationship in which the two are mysteriously and intimately one, so that the life of the one is the life of the other, and the life of the other is the life of the one. And that explains the mystery of marriage too, where the longer a man and a woman live together in marriage, the more they're like each other. They share a life. That's the way it is in the human body. There's an organic connection between the head and the body. And then in the third place with regard to headship, there's authority and rule. This head tells this body what to do. And that explains why this finger is here and this one is there. It's the head that tells the hand perhaps to pound the pulpit at times. It's the head that, tell, that tells the feet to walk in a certain place and direction. And everyone, even the littlest children, know that. What controls the body? The answer is the head. And that's the way it is in Scripture with regard to husband and wife. Ephesians 5, 22 and 23. You can explain that away, but you can't read it honestly and take anything else from it. The man is the head of the woman in marriage. And then fourth, in headship, there's preeminence. Preeminence. I see your faces. 
You see my face, my head. That's what we call attention to. Not the body, but the head. And so, with regard to headship, there's also preeminence. Now, apply all of that briefly to Christ. We already have briefly. Now, I remind you, Christ is first. Christ is primary. And He became that, not only in God's counsel in eternity, but when God seated Him at His right hand some 2,000 years ago. Second, there's an organic relationship between Christ and us. A living union. What a marvelous reality that is. We share His life. I live, and yet not I, but Christ lives in me. The mind of Christ is my mind. The power of Christ becomes my power and the wisdom of Christ and all of the other communicable attributes of God become mine through Him. Third, He rules. He does. In love, that's the way it ought to go in marriage too. No man ought to rule in any other way than in love. And then fourth, Don't call anyone's attention to you as a body. Call everyone's attention to Christ, the head. Isn't it shameful if in our witness to others about our life as Christians and as Protestant Reformed churches, we want people to look at us Isn't that shameful with the most awful shamefulness? If we have been guilty of that, that we want people to know about us, about the truth we bear or the life we live, and not about the head who has preeminence, shame on us. If we don't repent of that, and in all of our witness to others and to our children too, We repent of calling attention to ourselves, the body. And we turn to calling attention to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church. That's third. Fourth, in this first point, he got there, remember, because he first descended. Ephesians 4 points that out. He that ascended, what is it? but that He also descended first into the lowest parts of the earth before He sits enthroned. He had to lie. Before He's enthroned, He needs to be entombed. And that's not for His sake, it's for our sake because the only way that He could take captivity captive and earn gifts for us who are His body is that He pay the price for all of our sins. He needed to descend as the head of us. And that deep abasement is because He had to redeem a lost people. Break the chains of our slavery over sin by sin and death. Number one, He's man. Number two, He's God. Number three, He ascended at God's right hand to be head Number four, 
He did that by being abased first. And now number five, he is also at the right hand of God, head over everything. Everything. Ephesians 1.22 says that. He's head over all things. Have put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. Catechism makes that point too. Psalm 8 speaks of that. Psalm 110 speaks of that. The enemies become his footstool. He puts his head on their neck as it were. He wounds their hairy scalp. He's head over everything. And that begins, once more I say, when Jesus ascended into heaven, he's over everything. He's the head over everything. He's not the head of everything. He's the head over everything. He's the head of the church and over everything. Now we come to the last point, the prophet. And this first point comes right into that last point to the church. See that in Ephesians 1, 22, he's head over all things to the church. That is, with a view to the church, for the advantage of the church. He sits there, people of God, controlling what Putin does in Russia and what the premier of North Korea does there and what our president does in the White House or the Oval Office and all of the other nations and kings of the earth. He controls all of those things for the sake of you and me, his beloved bride and body. Read again Psalm 68. Perhaps that will be your choice for family devotions today. Think again what Psalm 68 says. And how it teaches that Jesus is the victor over all his enemies. Picture in your mind's eye the king, maybe King David, returning from a great victory over the Philistines or the Ammonites or the Moabites or one of those other nations that he subdued that had been oppressing Israel. Picture David coming back in all of his glory within his train, the captives, And in that train, all of the spoils of the victory that he's going to be giving to his people under him. And how he ascended up on high and was enthroned again in state and honored by all of the people. And then remember that train coming after him. Camels and mules and caravans loaded with gifts and spoils that the women divided and the men rejoiced over. Blessed be the Lord who daily loads us with benefits, even the God of our salvation. That's the prophet. That's the prophet. You and I have a king who's governing the worlds, controlling all of our enemies, and pouring out upon us benefits. Now a side application. Not really the application of the text but it's there in Ephesians. Men, if you are heads of your wife truly in a biblical way, number one, protect them. And number two, provide for them. 
Defend them. Don't let anyone hurt them. Spiritually, either. Be a man if you want to be head. Be this kind of man, like Christ over us. And if you want to be a man, load her with benefits. Give her what she needs. Lavish her with benefits. Beautify her in every way that you can, spiritually too. Be a man, men, if you want to be married. But that's off to the side. Here's the teaching of the Word of God for us this morning. What a marvelous prophet for us. He provides us with many gifts and he protects us. First of all, us. Imagine, imagine the unbeliever who doesn't like Christ on the throne. Read Psalm 68 again. What the king does to them, his enemies. And this is a call to you, if any of you yet are enemies of God. Bow down to the Christ, the King, the Lord Jesus. Submit to Him. Trust Him. Confess your faults and all of your sins. And know that apart from that, you will perish at His hands. He will strike you through with the sword of His wrath. Come to Him. And when you do, and all who do, will be loaded with the benefits of the Lord Jesus Christ. What benefits? Not that I drive home in a new car. Not that I'm able to buy a nice house. Not that I'm able to go on a vacation. Not that I become rich as though I just won the lottery. Would you know that the lottery winners are the most miserable people in the world often? The richest people in the world are not happy. Do not live for those kind of benefits. Understand the spiritual benefits of the forgiveness of sins and the hope of life everlasting and the comfort that God is your God and the ability to extend grace to others and have that grace extended to us. These are the gifts that Christ gives to us. Cherish those gifts. Lay up your treasures in heaven and not upon earth. And would you know how those gifts come to us? Reread Ephesians 4. He that ascended first descended, and when he ascended, he ascended there to give gifts to men. And what are those gifts? He gave some to be apostles, and some to be prophets, and some to be evangelists. Those offices are past, and he gave some to be pastors and teachers. The gifts that come to us in the forgiveness of sins, the hope of everlasting life, the grace to bear burdens, and to be content with what God sends me, all of those gifts come to us through pastors and teachers and elders and deacons. And then flowing into all of the members, from all of the members to all of the other members. Reread Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. Don't ever dismiss the importance of the offices. You do not. That's why you have a minister. That's why you're calling another minister. That's why you have elders and you appoint elders to be servants of you and deacons because you know that they are the ones who will bring you the word 
By which word Christ lavishes us with gifts. Great gifts. That's the prophet, first of all. Gifts, gifts. And the prophet, secondly, is that in the security of the church of Christ, lavished with gifts, we can look around us and see that Christ from heaven is subduing all of our foes and protecting us. He rules over all things, everything. The nations, that's one thing. The weather, that's another thing. The crops and the economy, that's another thing. Illness is another thing. Family, children, everything. Christ rules over everything. And all your enemies who would destroy you cannot because Christ is in control. That doesn't mean that everything's going to go your way because it often doesn't. It doesn't mean that nothing will go wrong, that there won't be any troubles in your life with regard to your children or your finances or your health because often they do go wrong. But it means this, people of God, in all your troubles, all of them, lift up your head and see Christ on the throne, throbbing with power, breathing in love for you. He's the one that descended into hell for your sakes and now rose again as the first begotten of the dead to give you hope with regard to your body. And he's ascended into heaven, seated at God's right hand, the one who loves you. He's ruling all things for your sakes. Jesus is. Jesus is good. Jesus is God. Jesus is our head. Amen. Father in heaven, may thy word comfort. May thy word break hard hearts and warn those who would rebel against Jesus. May thy word work faith in us and in our children. May thy word sustain us as we bear our burdens, as we struggle to obey the commandments, as we must live tomorrow in obedience to thy will and submission to it. As we live in prosperity and as we live in adversity, may thy word that teaches us of the Lord Jesus be our lamp and our light and our life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.